0: Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. I'm Mila Kim.
1: And I'm Ed Gilbreth. In every episode, you'll hear from authors of color as they share about the inspiring stories that led to the making of their books, as well as the challenges they had to endure and overcome along the way.
0: So, Ed, I have a question for you. Okay. Do you think Christianity is the white man's religion?
1: Whoa, ho- hold on, Mila.
0: You're,
1: <laughs> you're hitting me with a hard one there. That's a very loaded question.
0: Well, you know, if there was somebody to ask, I just wanted to ask you.
1: <laughs> well, as you probably know, there's a lot of history behind that question. And for decades, it's been asked. And um, while I would probably disagree with the answer being yes... I could understand why the question resonates so much with so many people and it has just as much relevance today as it did back in the days of the civil rights movement and the black Mm -hmm. power movements.
0: Yeah, you're right. It's a hard question, which is why I thought I might as well throw the curveball at you because that's the kind of stuff we want to talk about on this podcast. We want to ask the hard questions. If there's somebody who's perfectly suited to wrestle with that question, I think it would be today's guest, Antipas Harris. His book is actually entitled, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? So let's Let's listen to find out what he would say and why he felt compelled to tackle this question in his book. All right. So we're excited to welcome Antipas Harris, author of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion, to the Every Voice Now podcast today. So welcome, Antipas.
2: I'm delighted to be here. Thank you for having me. Yes, welcome.
0: Yeah, we're so glad to have you. Tell us a little bit about yourself.
2: I'm African-American and I'm from a little town called Manchester, Georgia, in deep south in rural Georgia family of eight. I'm the second eldest of uh, five boys and three girls.
0: Wow. And
2: uh, yeah, parents of (laughs) pastors, same mom and dad. Parents of pastors, dad uh, taught high school for about 34 years and retired. My mom also is an educator. My dad started a, he was a public school teacher, but he was also a pastor. So as a pastor, he started a Christian school at the church. And my mom was the head the head school mistress of the school at the church. Mm. So I ended up in the third grade going to the church school and for, and graduated from their high school. And my mom, after many years, they closed the school down in about 2010, I think it was. So family of educators. Yeah. Mm. Yeah.
1: yeah. That's an interesting thing as I read your bio, but also the uh, secret of your family that you were a part of a gospel music
2: family group. There were five brothers, a God brother, whose name also started with an A, Antonio. So he was number wow. six.
1: Right, otherwise then, he couldn't have been in the group if he didn't have there that you a.
2: go. Right. <laughs> and seven was the presence of God, so... We called it A7, not A6. Well, I remember wow. seeing some footage of uh, you uh,
1: performing on uh, 700 Club or one of the programs. 700 Club,
2: BTBN, yeah. TBN, all of them, yeah. yeah. We were on Billboard for 22 weeks on one of our songs, Don't Walk Away. It was a hit in 2007, so... You guys are really you're really good.
0: Wow. Thank you. That's we should we should insert the sound right here. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, <our> <laughs> Whatever that is, send us the MP3 file. We'll throw yeah. it in here. <laughs> you
1: know,
0: that's cool. I mean, it, it looks like family had a big impact in your life, not just growing up, but with your music and with church and all of that. So even as we're talking in this podcast about writing, I'm curious, like, did your family play a big role in you pursuing writing or was that something that you pursued later on? Well,
2: the backstory is I had a learning disability and when I was in public Mm -hmm. school and I couldn't read by the time I was in the third grade and I had a speech Mm -hmm. impediment. And interestingly enough, my dad saw the problem and being a pastor, a a concerned father, of course, but because he was an educator. And he wasn't really happy in the progress, primarily of my progress. And so that's why he started the school. That's why I'm always grateful to him uh, wow. for what he's done. To answer your question, I fell in love with stories, missionary stories particularly. And that's how I learned to read. And I never knew at that time, you know, as a young boy dreaming of what I'd be when I grew up, it certainly wouldn't be a writer and <laughs> travel speaking because I couldn't speak that well. Mm-hmm. Uh, although I did enjoy the readings of missionaries who wrote, like Rochanga Pudaiti, Hudson Taylor, David Brainerd, Jonathan Edwards. I really liked what they, and I admired them so much. And I learned to read to learn to read their stories. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, it, it, something happened within me where I, I started to believe that I can do it too. So mm-hmm. I was a musician all my life. And I think that my writing sort of was born out of that.
0: So can you share a little bit about that? Like, what do you do currently and how is writing part of that process? Because I know we didn't even get to your calling. What do you do day to day? You spoke a little (laughs) bit about being in ministry, but uh, yeah. yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, no, thanks for the question. I I have a new appointment now, just over a year ago. Bishop T.D. Jakes in Dallas, Texas appointed me as a president and dean of his new developing Jakes Divinity School and wow. um yeah and also install me as one of the associate pastors at the Potter's House i've always thought of you as sort of
1: a renaissance
2: man oh, wow. um,
1: as a scholar as a musician especially now as as an author and yeah. i'm excited to be able to share with the world the message that you're sharing in is Christianity, the white man's religion. It's an important book and um, yeah. excited to get it out there.
2: Thank you. I, I'm honored.
0: Thank you. Yeah. And so Antipas, if you could give one piece of advice to writers of color who are wanting to become published authors, what would that one piece of advice be?
2: You know, my one piece of advice is very simple that is, write. Mm -hmm. Sometimes people say, you know, I want to be a writer. I want to write a book. I said, but you got to write to write it. And you got to be willing to write down your thoughts when they don't all hold together. It's like um, brainstorming and then go back in it, especially in a technology age where you can cut and paste and rearrange things. But the key, I think, for people of color is to just write. Because here's the thing. Many people have many talents, but there are these invisible fences for all kind of reasons. Hmm. My -hmm. invisible fence was that I have a learning disability. Hmm. And if you tell yourself that and own that, you may never really become the professor because you've always seen yourself as having a learning disability. So that invisible fence, and it can be any, right? It can be born on the wrong side of town. It could be challenges in your family, something parents have told you all your life, or or it seems as if other people have are smarter than you because they can speak more eloquently. Or I love to read, but I don't think I can write like this writer mm-hmm. who wrote the book that I love so much. So then right. I probably can't write. So you judge yourself by somebody else's talents. Mm-hmm. That's why I say, just write, just, mm-hmm. just write, just write. And you may discover after a while that you actually have a gift that that is there, and somebody can help you organize that stuff. I, I, when I first started writing, uh, be honest with you, I I, had co- I was a professor, and I had colleagues say, yeah, but you just can't write." And then I accepted that. I say, you know, I don't really write because I can. Mm. I write because I want to, yeah. and yeah. you know, I put my feelings in my back pocket, and it works for me because now I can work better with editors. Because sometimes, and you would know this better than I do, but some people. Are so in love with what they said that you can't even help mm. them. It's like trying to help you,
1: yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but I can't help <laughs> you. can't yeah. let me help you. So I'm glad that. you said that, and I, I, will, <laughs> yeah, I will say that out loud. <laughs> yeah, well, I because I don't see myself as an editor, and I see an editor yes. as a particular set of gifts. And I see myself as a, I have ideas. So the editor helps me, especially an editor who, who helps to develop, a developing editor will help you write. And over time, you learn from the process. And that's been my experience. Well, I uh,
1: really appreciated the opportunity to work with you. And I appreciate your humility as an author that you really were open to guidance and direction. But you were bringing so much incredible content and great ideas to bear that it made my job easy.
0: We need to take a quick break. When we return, we'll talk more with Antipas about his journey of getting published. And so stay tuned. And thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast.
1: The world keeps changing at a dizzying pace. How can you stay current and discover biblical truths to meet today's challenges? Introducing Seminary Now, a new online on-demand streaming service where you can learn from gifted teachers such as Brenda Salter McNeil.
3: The world as God intended. Is a multicultural, multilingual, multi ethnic, and multinational place. James Chung. What is the gospel? Is it
1: just
0: about where you go when you die?
1: Derwin Gray. In order to build a multi ethnic church, you have to live a multi ethnic life. Who is around your table? Who are your friends?
0: And there are so many
1: more great teachers to learn from. Get a 20% discount off your subscription by using the code EVN2020 at SeminaryNow.com. That's EVN2020 at SeminaryNow.com. The world keeps changing. Don't stop learning. Welcome back to the Every Voice Now podcast. I'm Ed Gilbreth, and with us today is our very special guest, Antipas Harris, author of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion, which released in the spring of 2020. So Antipas, Let's talk a little more about your journey to reach this point of actually publishing a book. A lot of folks ha- have ideas and they think they have a book in them. And I see lots of proposals for books and stuff, but very rarely do they always make it to the finish line. But you accomplish quite a bit by getting there uh, with this uh, incredible book. Could you talk a little bit about when did you first begin thinking, I could do this. I could write a book. I need to write a book. What were the key moments that helped confirm for you that you could and would write this
2: book? Well, you know, I mentioned in the earlier section that narratives and stories are so important to me in, in terms of my own personal formation, but also the way I view the world. And so when five police were killed in Dallas and Alton Sterling and Philando Castile were killed in the same week, Several summers ago, I think it was 2016, I saw a need and a narrative. And I saw a narrative that it appeared to me that once the media moved, it kind of just disappears, but it stayed in my head. And as I then started collecting pieces of the narrative, how the implications of national crisis on the personal development of young urbanites and how people, how those narratives integrated with their faith stories and their spirituality, their conversation about spirituality. You make all these connections, right? So in 2005, I was a professor at Sacred Heart University in Fairfield, Connecticut. And I remember first day of class, I asked students at Catholic school, I say, tell me your name, where you're from, your religious background, and something exciting about yourself. And time and time again, these young um, students would say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. So then you're like, okay, there's a story here, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a story that's not really told, and what are the implications of that story? And how does and how can the church be informed about this story? And also, what can I say to speak to this issue? It always for me starts with this large conundrum of ideas that form a narrative. And then the question is, OK, where is the book in all of this? Because it's always the narrative is way bigger than what you're able to write about. But what are, how do you condense this and crunch it and crunch it and crunch it and come up with something? So it was one day when a student asked me in class, uh, Dr. Harris, what do you say to your friends when they're leaving the church and saying, it's the white man's religion?
0: Hmm.
2: Now, this is a new language, right? That didn't come up in 2005 with the spirituality comment. It really didn't come up when the five cops were killed and people were chanting Black Lives Matter. Now is what do you say to your friends when they're leaving the church and saying it's the white man's mm-hmm. religion?
0: Well,
2: and then I say, tell me more. And then he starts to talking about social unrest and they're saying they're spiritual. OK, so all of this is connected. You see, so now I need to understand the question a little bit more. So that's what led, I said, there is a book in here. Here's the book right here. Mm, Here's the book. At that point is when I started write into the proposal. Yeah, what, what I love is that you you bring I mean that's
1: that's an old question, right? Um, right. <laughs> but you brought it to the 21st century for millennials and for Gen Z, really bringing contemporary response to that. I mean, this is something we've been wrestling with a long time. You managed to to paint a picture of what it's like to be a young person today and to have to see a faith that isn't really speaking to their experience or the way they're seeing the world unfold. And I appreciate the way you
2: were able to make those connections to bring it back in for a younger generation. Thank you. Yeah, that was my reaction to the young man when he says, what do you say your friends when they're leaving the church and saying the White Man Religion? First thing, it had nothing to do with what I was lecturing on that day. The class was on leadership, so I thought, "Is he trying to derail my lecture?" Then <laughs> I looked at him in his eyes, and he seemed so sincere. And I said, "You know, tell me more," because I recognized the question from Malcolm X, who made it popular during the Civil Rights Movement '50s, '60s, when he was had a polemic against sort of MLK's white man religion and white man's Bible. And I mentioned that in the book. But why is a twenty-two year old? finding this so important to derail my lecture about, (laughs) you know, and it it turns out that it is as vibrant on the street, the black Hebrew Israelites, nation of Islam, um, signs of consciousness, expanded consciousness, um, the nuns, what Pew called nuns, Mm -hmm. they're all raising the same type of questions. So it is about how the gospel has been presented, but it is also the theological frameworks that lead to the, the way that we think and call it Christian you know, how we as evangelicals can think Christian when we're talking about abortion, but we cannot think Christian when we're talking about police killings and abuse on the street. Mm -hmm. And for them, they, you know, first of all, most of them would argue that the issue is about choice and not even about abortion. It's more about who makes the choice. It's kind of like now, right? Um, When we talk about religious freedom, when COVID-19 hit, churches were saying, we need our religious freedom, right? Mm -hmm. While the governors were shutting down The churches the question wasn't about letting people die from their perspective it was who makes the decision right Hmm. so in the mind of these young people the blatant brutality and racism in our society cannot compare to a very complex conversation about something like that so how if you can see that you can't see this so that's ideological and it's been framed in a christian package And that's why a lot of young people reject it. Mm -hmm. So what are some of the key takeaways from the book that you're hoping folks will leave with? One, I hope that people understand that the question is not mine. I've had so many arguments about the title of the book, as if I'm saying that Christianity is the white man's religion. No, it's a question. If you read the book, you'll see where the question comes from. That's one. But I think, importantly, to wrestle with the question, because usually when I have an interview with people, they say, now, just get straight to the point. Is it or is it not? And I was like, that's not the point. The point of the book is not answering the question as much as it is wrestling with the question. Right. Where does the question come from? Why is it relevant? Why are so many people embracing the question? Why is this a huge rhetorical indictment against the church these days. That's really the point of the book and what I get at in the first part. Now, the latter part, I try to get at some practical implications uh, or practical expressions of how we can overcome this question as a challenge in our society and religious landscape. But I hope that people really walk away with kind of like Martin Luther wrote 95 theses on the church in Wittenberg in the 1500s in the middle of a bubonic plague, by the way. So In this pandemic, this plague, I hope that this book comes off as a protest against the church, Mm -hmm. saying, listen, we have embodied and bore witness to an expression of the faith that is oppressive and misguided by sort of um, ideological frameworks that were privileging some and underprivileging others. We need to revisit scripture to understand again, reimagine the faith that can better equip us to serve this present age.
1: One of the most powerful elements uh, that I received from from reading your book is, uh, Uh you took different scripture passages and and showed how different cultural contexts emphasize certain things over others. Uh And you were able to show from an African-American or a black Christian lens, how a particular text would preach differently Yeah. Um, yeah. uh, could you talk a little bit about that and how different texts are are emphasized for different cultural contexts?
2: Yeah, I think there are two things there. One, um, I probably didn't go into as much because it's more of an academic discussion about epistemology and understanding the ways of knowing. And people from an African descent tend to be more relational in the way we think about, in the way we know and understand the world. So when you bring a certain epistemological lens, Mm. a way of knowing or interpreting the world to bear on the text, you see different things. And then, of course, when I talk about epistemology, I talk about hermeneutics, And I think I mentioned that in the book, the lenses through which you look. And those lenses are sometimes coded with innocence and sometimes they're coded with an agenda. And frankly, I mentioned how the American experiment was an agenda. That framed the way the colonizers read scripture. So immediately they would gravitate to scriptures that were oppressive, like slave obey your masters, you know, and they would use that to as a way of suggesting. They now they created the slaves <laughs> and then mm-hmm. say obey your masters, right? So we created a religious framework for which we can use the scriptures to oppress the people we made slaves. But, but the other way um, African-Americans tend to read the story is more narrative, um, mm-hmm. because this sort of relational way of knowing and narrative identity. So when we read scripture, you identify with the stories of the scriptures. When you have a certain experience of social trauma and pain and you encounter the narratives of scripture, and you start seeing the human beings in the text, Mm -hmm. there's a certain type of connection that you get with those characters, whether it's the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, being hugely oppressed for 400 and some years by a pharaoh who made them make brick without straw, or whether you're a female who have been battered and Mm -hmm. being treated wrongly. And then you read the story of Hagar. Now, Mm -hmm. if you read the story of Hagar and you're a female who's been wounded, you identify with an innocent woman who's been cast out of a house. If I don't know that experience when I encounter this is a story I I mentioned in the book. If I don't have that kind of experience, I can ignore the humanity of Hagar And rush to celebrating Abraham as the patriarch of faith. So, what's interesting to me is that we have to have a community of interpreters from a variety of backgrounds and a variety of ethnic identities because that's what makes us the body of Christ. But when it's all put into a white male's interests and they write the commentaries, they teach the classes, you know, it's like. (laughs) So much of God, you miss.
0: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
2: that's good. Or or for that concern, or or, uh, Black man, right? Uh, It needs to be females as well. And and we have to have people to enter into the conversation from a variety of locale. Absolutely. That's great.
1: Well, I wish we could spend a little more time with that, but we need to take (laughs) another break. But when we return, we will continue our conversation with Antipas Harris and learn why he was the right person to have written this book. So stay tuned. And of course, thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast. It's time for our Behind the Books segment, where we pull back the curtain and give you more of the behind-the-scenes publishing stories of our guests' books. Today, you'll hear from Helen Lee, who was in the room where it happened when Antipas's proposal came to IVP.
3: I'm Helen Lee, and I'm the Associate Director of Strategic Partnerships and Initiatives for IVP. I first got to know Antipas and his name and his book through his proposal. Back when he proposed it in 2018, I was the director of marketing and I had the opportunity to read many proposals and to assess whether or not these would be good books for us to pursue and publish. And when Antipas's proposal came through, certainly his proposed title was incredibly arresting, which was "Is Christianity, the White Man's Religion. And we kept that title. Why wouldn't we? It was such a good, provocative and intriguing title. But I didn't know Antipas very well. I'd never heard of him prior to that point. So I did what any good director of marketing would do. I Googled him and I tried to get a sense of what he was like. And what kinds of things he had done. And I encountered uh, videos of Antipas preaching. And as I watched those videos and saw his incredible eloquence and his oratory power, I just thought, if he can write, like he can preach, we are going to have a great book here. And I'm delighted to see now, years later, that he's been able to follow that whole path all the way through and publish a book with us. It's been a delight to work with him. I've had the privilege of also seeing his book become curriculum through our partnership with Seminary Now. It was one of the books that was chosen to be a featured course on that platform. Seminary Now is an online, on-demand, video curriculum website. And it's now wonderful to see that Antipas has not just words on a page, but words in video form that people can learn from. His message is timely. I love that his book opens up new doors for IVP to reach new readers and a new generation of readers, especially given the relevance of his questions for millennials, as well as those who know Antipas through his work in the church and the academy. So I'm very honored that we get to publish Antipas, and I'm really glad that you all get to learn from him through his book and through this particular episode.
0: You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Myla Kim. So today we've been talking with Antipas Harris, author of Is Christianity the White Man's Religion?, which can be found wherever books are sold. So Antipas, let's talk more about your voice and the importance of your voice to this conversation that you're contributing to, even in this book. And so why does your particular ethnic voice matter in the subject of your book?
2: Great question. Well, I think... That my voice is important, not just because I'm African American, but I'm African American from the deep South. And I think that makes somewhat of a difference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Georgia, right? The capital of the KKK or something. But, you know, I grew up in an environment I, uh, where rebel flags were the norm. It wasn't until mm-hmm. later that I realized what they actually meant because it was just the norm everywhere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up in that context. I grew up in a church and a family in which I discovered Christ. And ever since I discovered Christ, Christ has always cared about me and us Mm -hmm. and and we were poor and we prayed. But there was a story, that original version of the book, where my dad prayed because we didn't have any food. And I remember he had us on his bed as young kids. We were praying on his bed. He said, we just pray to the Lord send us money because I don't have no, you know, I haven't got my check now, And but God mm-hmm. God is a provider. And he called it luck, irony, when there was a, a mother who called him within the hour and said, Elder Harris, will not you come to my house? I, I got something that I need to give you. So he put us all in his station wagon and we went down to about, I think it's about 20 minutes from where she lived. And he came out with an envelope and he opened the envelope and it was a hundred dollars. And he said, guys, the Lord just answered our prayers. Mm-hmm. You know, here's a hundred dollars. We're going mm-hmm. to the store to buy food. Wow. So that had an indelible impression upon me, not only because of what happened that day, but it said to me that God is a God that answers prayers and God mm-hmm. is a God who cares about us in our situation in mm-hmm. life. Amen. So that was my discovery of God. So I believe that my voice is important in writing on this because I understand not just the correct orthodox answer to the question, is Christianity the white man's religion? I have, I have situations in life where I have come to know, to be acquainted with the God of my knowing, so that I don't have to question yeah. whether God cares about me.
0: Hmm. And
2: I believe because that's not just something I know in my head, it's something I know in my heart. Well, I can talk to people about that God.
0: Hmm. And I
2: don't need to open the Bible to do that, you know, initially. And I think that you got to have a sense of knowing in your experience in life to be able to wrestle with a question like this and to provide what I call an urban apologetic.
0: That's so good. Thank you for that. I love that you talk about the narratives and you share your story because I think that gives so much more context and impact to even what it means to wrestle with the question of, is Christianity a white man's religion? So super cool. So who helped you discover and raise your voice? You know, I know you talk a lot about family and all of that, but kind of who are the key people or groups in your life who gave you motivation and inspiration along the way?
2: Yeah, of course, family, mom and dad, sisters and brothers. And then, you know, in the Deep South, you have a, you read these stories about Rochanga Budite. I read about David Brainerd, as I said earlier, and Jonathan Edwards. And I learned that they went to Yale and mm-hmm. in the Deep South where you're eating government cheese and drinking powdered milk um, <laughs> to imagine someday somehow you are some, you'll get to a Yale and you got learning disabilities. You don't talk that well. You don't really say it out loud because it's like the thing you don't say because it seemed to mm. be overly ambitious. So you try people say things, but well, baby, you know, you can go to such and such college and you can be just as smart. And you can. Yeah. You absolutely can. That's not the point. The point is when you're in a context where you have dreams but no access and then the Lord sends somebody along who finds favor with you for some odd reason, mm and they are always pointing to your life and saying nice things, all the while there are 10 people saying negative things. Mm. there's God's got somebody who would say something positive, and you connect with that. And before I know it, I'm at Emory. I didn't even think I'd get to Atlanta, right? Mm. Then at Emory, I remember when I was rejected multiple times because I wanted to, after I did my Master of Divinity at Candler School of Theology, i finished LaGrange College and then go on to Emory. And I was, I was praying, Lord, I really want to do a doctorate. But every single day, I got a rejection letter. And all of my friends got this church, they got that PhD program, and then there's me. You know, I don't do well on these GREs and all that stuff. So that was part of the reason. I graduated with the with a high GPA, but I just don't do well on these standard tests. Can you tell I got an attitude about it, too? <laughs> So anyway, they were rejecting me, rejecting me, rejecting me, rejecting me. And then one of my professors said, have you ever thought about going to Yale? And I'm saying all of this to make the, to answer the question. First of all, I finally have made it big. I met Emory from Manchester. <laughs> and then you get rejection letters that remind you that you really haven't made it big. Mm-hmm. You're still the young guy who's incapable. You're still the young guy who had a learning disability. Look, every day you get a rejection letter. It's because you're not good enough. So that whole, I'm not good enough from um, five years old comes back up again. And Mm -hmm. it really cripples your desire to even want to do anything else. And so you just say, well, maybe I shouldn't, right? Maybe this is as far as I can go. And then somebody comes along and say, you should apply for Yale. And then another voice in your head say, you just got six uh, rejections, you know? Well, the worst they can do is reject me I mean, I've got six, I've got practice for this. <laughs> <laughs> that's true, that's true. So, so you just apply, right? You just apply, right? All they can say is no, and that's probably what they're going to say, but at least I can say I tried. And then when they come back and say you got in, you realize that all along there have been people in, you know, in these places where you feel the most despondent that God will use to tell you to do something that you kind of want to do, but didn't think you could. And all along, he's making my childhood dream come mm-hmm. to pass. Yeah. So you have to have the courage to allow people who care about you to support you. And that's been my journey. And I think they've been my inspiration to this point. Wow. That's beautiful. That <laughs> yeah. makes all
1: the difference
2: to, to have yeah. those people come along who, who see it
1: before you could see it, who are able to, to see your, your full potential when you're not able to grasp it yet. It's a a wonderful gift.
0: Yeah, Yeah. that's a good word even for our listeners. I hope that'll open their eyes to look around and see who are those people in their lives right now, encouraging them to write and to get them to keep writing. Really good word. You know, I want to talk about the church. And so how can the church do better to find and listen to voices like yours? What keeps voices like yours heard and recognized, especially in the context that you're in?
2: The good question. And, you know, my experience has been a mixed bag and I recognize that I'm, I'm an anomaly in some ways mm-hmm. um, because I don't particularly play to status quo when it comes to People always saying, I can't believe you said that. I can't believe you. (laughs) You So and sometimes saying things, posting things in social media and things like that, it gets certain doors shut. Some people don't know how to take a person like me. And I have to accept that that's a reality and try to, with my personality, try to ask God to give me a a graceful personality because some of the things that I say can be very difficult to hear. So in many churches are functional, if they work the way they are, meaning they can pay the bills, the people coming, they don't want agitators. Yeah. Uh, somebody coming in, to dis- disrupting the status quo and challenging sort of w- the way they think. And they don't know if I change what that will do to my everyday, you know, my Sunday attendance and how many letters am I going to get? So then people would not invite me because they don't know what they have to clean up when, they, when I leave. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but, but I think the opportunity to write and to establish who I am and, and what I'm really about gives, it, it, when people learn that, it becomes, it takes the temperature down a bit because I'm very interested in how all of God's people can be equally treated in the world and the image of God be reflected or seen reflected in everyone. It is a unity message. It is not a divisive message. That's my message, my heart, my desire, my focus. And the more that people realize sort of the end goal, the more they're interested in hearing a little more. I do think that that end goal is not an anomaly. A lot of people have that end goal, but people want to get there in ways that are not telling the truth. It's like, mm-hmm. we just want everybody to get along. You can't just get along until you recognize where the problems are yeah. and state that yeah, clearly. Mm-hmm. The Bible says, root up and then build again, right? Mm-hmm. You can't build on top of something that hasn't been rooted up, but right. it's just going to grow up. What's there is going to grow back out again. So for me, I think it shows like this, uh, opportunities like this with IVP to write the book, to publish it, to get it out there. It becomes one more thing to help people understand a different way of viewing the world because I do think i have a I have my finger to some extent on the pulse of the person who does not go to church hmm. the, the way they view what we do, and I like to see us get more than you know recycled Christians but rather hmm. draw in people who otherwise wouldn't even be going to church, and I think what I'm talking about is going to get at get at that better than a lot of what we do in churches.
0: This last question, so kind of every Voice Now podcast is all about amplifying voices of color. And so if you can share with us, who are other voices that the church should be paying attention to?
2: Wow. Yeah. I think that the church should be paying attention to, and now this is, could be scandalous, but I think it's true. We need to be listening to voices that are not necessarily Christian voices, like the founders of Black Lives Matter. Uh, we shouldn't brush them off because they don't profess or something on that website doesn't align with what we actually think as a Christian. Mm-hmm. Uh, we got to get out of the echo chamber and started to understand that for God so loves the world. But I also think we should listen to people like Sean King or Michael McBride, or uh, we need to also listen to Shane Claiborne. But we need to understand that God speaks in unprecedented ways. And if God can use a donkey, that God can use people who are not in positions. So can God use the prophetic voice that is unorthodox? And I think God can. And those are the voices we need to really listen to. I think we need to listen to the voices that are crying out on the streets.
0: Yeah, that's really good. Well. Thank you, Antipas. It's been great to have you on our podcast. And so we just love chatting with you, excited about your book and learning from you.
2: I'm honored so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity to be here, Miley, and also Ed. Absolutely. And we're looking forward to a lot of churches uh, having
1: to clean up after you. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you.
0: Wow, Ed. That was a great conversation with Antipas Harris today.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So it must be fun to be on this side of the process now, like having gone through the editing and now seeing his book out in the world. How can people find out more about Antipas if they're interested?
1: Well, a great place to start would be at Antipas's website. You could find him at antipasharris.com or you could follow him on Twitter at Dr. Antipas. That's like Dr. Antipas. And of course, his book, Is Christianity the White Man's Religion? is available at ivypress.com. And if you use the code EVN40, you can get 40% off and free shipping in the U.S. So take advantage of that great deal right now. You can find out all of these details on our webpage at everyvoicenow.com, where you'll find show notes for this episode and a lot more. Thanks for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, brought to you by IVP. Our producer is Helen Lee, and engineering is by Revision Sound in Dallas. If you are enjoying our show, we'd be really grateful if you share about it with your friends. Please review and recommend us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.
0: And we love getting your feedback, so get in touch with us with your comments, critiques, or questions. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Every Voice Now, or email us at info at everyvoicenow.com. And join us next time for another inspiring episode of Every Voice Now.
3: special note of thanks to our guest Antipas Harris and to his family for permission to use the song Don't Walk Away by the group A7.